by way of transitioning and making some kind of uh, clean segue, we are week 25 into the book of Acts. Uh, we have gone through this incredibly lengthy and powerful journey to get to what I think is perhaps the most important and pivotal book in the entire, or chapter in the entire book, chapter 10. Chapter 10 of Acts is where everything gets turned upside down. God changes the course of redemptive history in Acts chapter 10. And it's really important for you and I as Christ followers to understand that because we are grafted into God's covenant family through the movement that is happening in Acts chapter 10. And so last week we kind of uh, opened this thing up and we're going to kind of wrap it up um, today. So last week, here's what we found. We found that, well, two weeks ago, Peter had been a part of a pretty amazing miracle where he had raised uh, by God's power a woman by the name of Tabitha from the dead, and everybody went crazy. They were so excited. So many people came to know the Lord. And Peter stayed in this town where this had happened called Joppa. And while he was staying there living with a, a man named Simon, who was a tanner, someone that took hides of dead animals and turned them into whatever, leather goods or boots or whatever you would do with hides of dead animals in those days. He was staying with him, and there was a man, a Roman centurion, a guard by the name of Cornelius, that God appeared to in a vision. And he was 30 miles away in a town called Caesarea, and he appeared to him, and he said, Cornelius, listen, there is a guy, and he's in Joppa, and his name is Simon, and he's staying with this tanner, and they have a house right by the beach, and I want you to go and get him. And God appeared to Cornelius while Cornelius was in prayer and said, go get this guy. No idea why, no really clear concept of what's going on. So Cornelius calls a few of his fellows over and he sends them the 30 miles to Joppa to go and find this guy, Simon Peter, who's staying with Simon the Tanner. Well, while they were on their way, God speaks to Peter in prayer. Peter was in prayer and God speaks to him in this vision and he gives him this vision that something like a sheet or a ship's sail is being lowered from heaven by its four corners. And in that sail is, is a matter of all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And God speaks to Peter in the middle of that vision. He says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord, because I have kept all of the dietary food laws as a Jewish person. I have never eaten anything unclean. I can't start today. And then God says to Peter, he says, listen, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. About that time, the men arrive that have come up from Joppa or come to Joppa from Caesarea and they say, we're looking for Simon. Simon gets up and he says, I am who you are looking for. Tell me what you want. And so they explain the vision that Cornelius had and Simon invites them in. Peter invites them in and they spend the night there. And we left everything hanging right there. Um, what we're going to see today is as Peter makes a journey back to Caesarea and he explores what is happening in the household of Cornelius, we are going to see God throw wide open the redemptive movement in history that moves beyond salvation as a promise for Jewish people and ingrains all of us as part of God's covenant family. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ opens the floodgates to the purification of humanity when we profess faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why I say it's the most important chapter in the book. Because through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have access to holy, mighty, and amazing God. And what we're going to learn today as we look at this text is that we carry some baggage with us that we need to shed, not only as individuals, but as a church. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the rest of Acts chapter 10 this morning. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who does 
the miraculous, that you are a God, Father, that is at work, as we learned last week, even when we don't see you, that you are at work in the unseen. Lord, we thank you that we are connected with other churches, not only in our city, but around the world, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we celebrate that we are connected with men like Faustin and our friends and uh, believers and family in Guatemala and Uganda and China and Peru. God, we thank you that we are connected with missionaries like Reagan who are in Thailand. God, that we are united by our common love for Jesus Christ. That God, you have allowed us access to your holiness and your righteousness through the person of Jesus Christ. And that God, we are not an isolated community, but we are part of a much bigger community of Christ followers. So this morning as we open your word, Lord, I pray that we would we would learn some truth about ourselves. Some being deeply convicting maybe, and some just being things that we need to anchor our life to. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us in these moments. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning, to instruct your heart, to um, do something inside of you. This morning is not just about us. So take a moment right where you are and just pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in them. Even if you don't know their name, be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified as we open your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Draw us into your presence, Lord. Lord, make this morning completely and totally about you and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So Peter and uh, several of these folks are staying at Simon the Tanner's house just for the night. So they'd come all the way up from Caesarea. They are staying with Simon the Tanner. And the next morning, they're going to get up and head back to Cornelius' house. And that's what we're going to pick up in chapter 10 verse 23, kind of right in the middle of verse 23. So the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. Following uh, The following day, as they arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together all of his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I, sent, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you have sent for me? And Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message of God 
sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism John preached, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and the power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify that he is the one who God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We'll finish the rest up next week. So Peter is at Simon the Tanner's house. God has spoken to him and told him that someone is basically showing up, um, and you are going to go with them. He had given this grand vision about clean and unclean animals. And last week we talked about the fact that part of that vision really was not about dietary laws. The repeal of dietary laws was not really about food or animals. Instead, it was about people, as we're going to see. And so as Peter's there, these folks show up, and he goes with them back to the house of Cornelius. They walk the 30 miles there, and when they arrive, Cornelius greets Peter at the door, and he throws himself on the ground, right? An act of total and supreme reverence, if you will. And Peter quickly stands him up and says, don't, don't do that. I am just a person. I'm just a man, right? They talked for a little while and they went inside the house and Peter found this huge crowd gathered, all the friends and family of Cornelius. And the first thing he says when he walks in is he looks at them all and he goes, you know, you've heard, you're well aware that it is unlawful for a Jewish person to basically associate or be in the home of a Gentile person. But God has showed me, right, that I should not call anything unclean that he has made clean. So can I ask, why you have sent for me, right? And then Cornelius explains. He says, this is what happened. He shares that God had given him this vision and that he was supposed to go to him. And so God had told me to listen to every single thing that you say, whatever it is. And so at that moment, it says that Peter began to speak. The actual language there is that Peter drew a breath and he opened his mouth, meaning that Peter was about to proclaim and he preaches the gospel. And he walks through, starting from about Jesus' baptism all the way through his life and resurrection and the appearances and how God has set Jesus up to be the arbitrator, the judge, and the advocate for humanity. That if we believe in him, we have eternal life. Everyone. So a lot of backstory here that I'm going to bypass because... We kind of went over it a lot last week, but, but what we really need to hang on to here is that things are dramatically changing. And for those of us that have the full extent or the full kind of luxury of seeing the gospel as a whole, seeing the New Testament as a whole unfold, we miss some of the gravity that is taking place here. Because God is doing something so big, so mighty, that it's going to shake the very foundation of those who believe in Christ, mainly Jewish believers. Because what God is doing is he's repealing centuries and centuries of dietary laws, not because they're about food, but because God is doing something tremendously huge in terms of redemptive history. And that is where you and I get grafted into this covenant picture and this covenant family. And it's really important. So I really started thinking about how I wanted to explore this and if we wanted to work through all these verses and kind of talk about all the nuances. And I got, it got really complicated. 
And so then what I decided to do is I'm just going to scale back, and I want to give you a couple of simple things that I think should change the way that we think as a church. And I'm not going to offer them up as suggestions. I'm actually going to offer them up as mandates because I deeply believe that they are that important. That if we pay attention to what's happening in this text, what's happening in the life of Peter and what God is calling us to do, it should radically alter how we see our own lives in Christ, how we orient ourselves to the gospel, and how we think as a church. They should be hallmarks of who we are. And the first thing that we see is this, is that we have got to completely shatter the exclusivity that has kind of been ingrained into our attitudes and behaviors as a church. They've got to understand what's going on. God handed the law or laws to the Israelites in two main categories. The first was sort of in the category of his moral law or in the character law of God. The Ten Commandments, the moral law that unfolds in a lot of the teaching of Moses are things that are in conjunction with God's character. Right? They are things that are morally attributed to God. Those things cannot be repealed. If they were ever repealed, it would go against God's very nature and God's very character. The Ten Commandments, moral law, they are character laws of God that he has laid down to say, this is who I am. Right? This is what I look like. They are part of my character, and I want you to live into these things. They are to govern your boundaries, your life. God is not going to repeal his moral law. He's not going to say, oh, you know what, it's okay for you to murder each other. Like, that's fine now. It once wasn't, but it is okay. It would go against the very nature and moral character of God. So you've got that set of laws. But then you have sets of laws that God laid down for historical purposes. So that God chose this tiny nation, this group of Israelites, out of one man named Abraham, who was a pagan, and out of no doing of his own, God said, Abraham, I am going to use you And I'm going to build an entire people group, and you are going to bless more than just that nation. You are going to bless all nations, because I have chosen you. And then God uses Abraham as a building block for the nation that would become God's instrument to demonstrate his grace and love to the world. That the Israelites were chosen as a tool to show God's picture. They were a priesthood of believers in who God was to demonstrate God's redemptive characteristics to the world. And God gave them laws to set them apart historically. The dietary food laws, things like that, the ways that they dressed and lived, they were historical laws designed to set apart the Israelites to show them that the God that they served and to show the world that the God that they served was different than all the other world religions and all the other people groups. And they were historical laws. Now I say all that to tell you this. Along the way, the Jewish people began to adopt a sort of ethnic separation. They believed that their lives and role as Jewish people was part of salvation. They believed that God had set them apart and therefore salvation would come because they were Jewish people. And that prejudice had creeped its life even into the life of early century Jewish Christians. They deeply believed that they were chosen by God as part of God's people and that salvation was a Jewish right, that they were a little bit better than everybody else. They were prejudiced. They believed that exclusively salvation was for the Jewish people, even to the person of Jesus Christ, those who believed in Jesus. What God is doing in the life of Peter is he is showing Peter his prejudice. He is showing Peter that he has got a flawed way of thinking that is not only sinful, but it's bankrupt, that the life and death of resurrection has opened the floodgates of salvation to humanity. And that's why God says to Peter, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. 
that through the death and resurrection, God has cleansed humanity, that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he has cleansed us, and therefore our own kind of ethnic ideals don't play into the picture of salvation. And it had creeped its way into their everyday life. Now, Peter doesn't think he's prejudiced, right? God shows up, and he shows this sheet with all these different animals, and he goes, he goes kill and eat, and Peter's like, surely not I. Like, I've never done that, right? Peter does not feel that he has got this prejudice. He feels that he has lived righteously and done it correctly. And then therefore he was to tell everybody else how they're supposed to do it. But God's movement through Christ was to break down these barriers of ethnic separation. But the reality is, is that in today's church, in our culture, we are deeply prejudiced and we live in a deeply exclusive society. Deeply. We like to think we're not. We like to think that we're kind of open to all kinds of backgrounds and races and uh, socioeconomic kind of situations and people that are from different areas that don't look like us. But the reality is, is that we are deeply prejudiced like Peter. And that it took God doing a huge radical work in the life of Peter to show him his prejudice, to show them the way that he was living a life of exclusivity. We are called as a church, as a church, to completely shatter exclusivity and attitude, and behavior. But here's the reality for most of us, you know, and and I'll be a little offensive if you'll let me. Most of us want just enough diversity to pat ourselves on the back and say that we know a homeless person or a person with a different skin color. We want just enough diversity so that we can look around and say, hey, I go to a diverse church. You know, many people have told me, hey, Trim, I like coming to the Vine Community Church because we're so diverse. I dare you to look around. How diverse are we really? What that tells me is that, and I'm not trying to offend you, I'm just simply trying to tell you, is that what we want in terms of diversity is I want to go to a place where there are people that don't necessarily look like me, but I don't necessarily want to invite them into my life. We think that diversity in the church means that we show up on a Sunday and we have people from all different walks of life. The reality is that's just not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is that we've got to shatter that exclusive nature that says my life is separated from other people because of who I will and won't let in. We have created boundaries of racism and socioeconomic division and even by things such as behavior, right, on who we will and won't engage in and with. And I deeply believe that what we see here happening is that we have got to work to shatter that attitude and behavior of exclusivity that's creeped its way into our church. I mean, Sunday mornings is still the most segregated hour in America anyway, right? But not just because we don't have people that look like us all the time or that act like us all the time, but because it's our hearts that don't allow other people into our lives. We want to be diverse just enough to pat ourselves on the back and say, you know what, I've got a friend that doesn't look like me, or I know a homeless person. My church brings homeless people here. I feel good about that. You ever met them? You ever know the name? You ever invited them into your home? See, we want just enough diversity so that we can say we have it, but not enough that it costs us any kind of kind of real life. And I deeply believe that what God is doing here in the life of Peter is not just demonstrating that the gospel was for everyone, but that Peter had to be the advocate for it. That he had to see the error of his way of thinking, and he had to be the advocate that was going to tell the world that God is doing something amazing and that we have been ingrained without even knowing that we have an attitude of prejudice and exclusivity that has entered into our world and operates 
even in the onion. Not one person in this room would probably declare that you're a racist or that you're this or that you're judgmental on somebody else because of what they make or where they live or what part of town they come in. Not one of us. The reality is those truths have ingrained themselves into our hearts. And it's evidenced in who we, we engage in, who we invite into our homes, who we share heartbeats with, how we speak to people. It's engaging a gospel that is sort of me-centered, where we feel better about the fact that I go to a church that's got a few different people than where I went to church before. We have got to work to shatter that lie. It's bankrupt and it's sinful. And our church, and not just this one, but our church, Big C, should be fighting this at every corner and every turn. So we see that we have got to work to completely shatter an attitude and behavior, this exclusivity and prejudice has entered our church. So the question is, how do we do it? Well, there, there's, there's a whole series here for another time. But what we see is we see the very first step to this happening in the life of Peter. And that is that we have to have an attitude of repentance. So probably the most amazing thing that I see in this text is kind of lost in the bigger picture. But it's the heartbeat and life change that is happening in Peter. So when Peter shows up at Cornelius' house... Listen to what he does. When he shows up, the first thing he does, he walks in the door, right? He enters the house. He sees all of these people gathered there. And he says, hey, listen, you all here are well aware that it's against the law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure and unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without any objection. May I ask why you sent me? So what we see here in not so many words is Peter walking into Cornelius' house, seeing this group of people that is nothing like him, that he for so much part of his life thought were second-class citizens, would not even put his foot in their home because he believed that not only being with them would make him unclean, but being associated with them would make him unclean. And he walks into the home of those people, those family, those friends, and he says, listen, you have heard that my people, the Jewish people, that our law says that if we even associate you with you, we have been unclean. We are dirty. That's what you've been told your whole entire life. That's what I've believed my whole entire life. He says, but God has shown me. In other words, God has shown me the error of my thinking, the brokenness of my ways, that I should not call anyone unclean that God has made. You see, what God was doing was that through the person of Jesus Christ, he was identifying all of our uncleanliness, that we are all broken and sinful, and that we don't get the luxury to look at anybody else and say, you are unclean, therefore I cannot have a part with you. The grace of Jesus Christ through the cross, the death and resurrection has given access to God's holy righteousness to every person who professes faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter walks in and he says, this is what I used to believe, but God has changed my heart. And so, can I ask you why I came? Because I came without objection. Where you say, normally, in my old way of life, I would have said, are you kidding me? To go to stay at the house of a Roman Gentile? I'm not going to do it. But God was at work in Peter's heart. He was staying at the house of a tanner. God took him over to this Cornelius, this Gentile's house, and he assembled a room full of Gentiles. He showed him this vision that would break down not just the dietary food laws, but the bigger picture of what God was doing in redemptive history. And basically what Peter's saying is like, my old way of thinking was broken and bankrupt. Here's the problem. Most of us don't believe that we have anything to repent from. 
Most of us don't believe that we are racist or that we have prejudices against people from other socioeconomic backgrounds or that when we bring homeless friends here from different places, we believe we're not prejudiced. We believe that we are a people that are all accepting of everybody, but the reality is deep ingrained in our hearts. Like Peter, we need God to radically wake us up and show us the error of our ways. Like I said, I am not interested in having a church that is content with just saying, yeah, I got a few people that don't look like me. So Sunday morning feels a little better. Until we decide that we're going to break down the divisions in our heartbeats and allow people inside what God is doing in us to openly confess and have an attitude of repentance. Now keep in mind, there is a huge difference in confession and repentance. Confession is that part of us that says, God, before God or people, God, I have, I have erred, I have made a mistake, I have sinned. It is confessing those realities. Repentance is the part of us that says, God, I have sinned, I have broken, I have done this, and I am completely turning in the opposite direction. Now notice I'm not saying that we have to have an attitude of confession. We have to have an attitude of repentance. One that says, God, I have heard you and I know the error in my ways and my sinful, bankrupt way of thinking. The judgmental attitude that I bring to life in general. I want to repent of it. And I want to completely turn in the opposite direction and risk and live differently. God, I know that I am judgmental, not just of people of other kind of races or kind of particularities, but of people in general. That we walk in here and we know what they did on Friday night and I can't believe they are here. We carry that attitude and then we act as if we're tolerant and accepting and all this. But the reality is we know what she did, he did, they did. And we carry that attitude. We have got to have an attitude of repentance of that. A complete turning of that. This is what we see unfolding in the life of Peter. So as a church... We have got to be about completely shattering this exclusivity, this prejudice. We've got to have an attitude of repentance, of repentance. It's the beginning step. Now, there's a whole other series of things that we could explore there, but this is what we see unfolding. And so what does Peter do? Right? What, what, what does he begin to do? Well, they invite him to share. He takes a deep breath, and Peter preaches the true gospel. Now, I find this really interesting, and I, I want to just spend a few minutes here, and we'll kind of wrap everything up with this, because most of what, ah, can I phrase that? Yeah, no. Most of what comes out of our pulpits and out of our mouths that we say is gospel teaching is not really gospel teaching at all. And here's what I mean. Most of the gospel-centered or gospel kind of oriented teaching that we say is gospel really is not gospel. Because at its core, it has me or us as its central figure. We can tell people all the time, I'm about proclaiming the gospel. And you sit down with someone, you tell them what God has done in you. And it's amazing and it's true, but it's not the gospel. We tell people all the time, I have got the gospel, I have got good news for you. God loves you. That is true and it is real, but it is not the gospel. In the New Testament, the gospel is content-driven. And the content of that message is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, period and only. It is not about me. It is not about you. It is not about the person. It is about Jesus. We have been seduced into thinking the gospel centers around me and what God has done in me. And let me tell you my story. 
Peter gets the opportunity. Tell us, God has told us to listen to every single thing that you say. And it begins with that attitude that looks at Cornelius and says, get up, I'm just a person, please. And then look at what Peter does. He doesn't tell his story. He doesn't talk about his life. He doesn't talk about all the things that he's done and how God has brought him from a fisherman to this life. He just simply and straightforward proclaims the person and truth of Jesus Christ, beginning with Jesus' baptism, going through his life and his healings and his death and his resurrection. And he preaches a true gospel. Now, I say this, okay, I say this because it's really important for us to understand that much of what is coming out of our mouths and out of our pulpits is me-centered, entertainment-driven gospel that at its core is petrified of offending and its central desire is just simply not to offend someone enough to where they won't come back. We do it with our own lives and we do it in our churches. We are called to preach a true gospel, a gospel that is centered on the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work alone, that we are due the wrath of God because of our sinful behavior. But God, in his infinite love for us, became our advocate through the person of Jesus Christ, died for our sin, and exchanged our detestable behavior for his glory, period. And you did nothing and will do nothing to earn it. That is the true gospel. Everything else is really just me-centered stories. And while they're true, and while your family and friends may really enjoy them, at the central point, it's not Jesus, it's you. The central point of most of our preaching is the engagement of entertainment. And at the end of the day, maybe we'll circle back around to make sure we have a little application at the end so that everybody walks away with something. And I'm as guilty as anyone and everyone. But I say this because as I read this text, what I realized is, that Peter could have seized a moment, not intentionally even, to make this about him and what God has done in him and how far he has come and how he was not the same man. Not a word. Just about Jesus. Now, one point of clarity that I want you to understand, and that's this. It would be a mistake to look at this text that we've seen and think that the vision that Peter had and the kind of coming down the sheet and the removal of dietary laws and all that and his kind of a conversation with the people at Cornelius' house was about God being tolerant of all people and all behaviors. It's a mistake. In our Western kind of postmodern understanding of tolerance, we believe that God accepts all, and the truth is God invites all. God does not accept all. God invites us as we are, but he does not accept us as we are. The reality is that this is not a passage about tolerance. It is about God working in Peter to break his prejudices, to show him that he has had a sinful way of thinking about humanity, and that God has opened to the person of Jesus Christ all those that would proclaim saving grace in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and Savior. It's not a message of open tolerance that says, hey, listen, God loves all now, no matter what you've done, moral and religious, pluralism, everybody's in. It's not true. It's very specific, and it's very specific to this truth, that we all have access to God's saving grace of the person of Jesus Christ by no work of our own, that we have to surrender our hearts and our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that is not delineated by ethnic separation. That's why Acts chapter 10 is so important, is because it has ingrained you and it has ingrained me into the covenant family of God, and we did nothing to deserve it. 
as a church, we have to constantly be fighting to shatter the prejudice and exclusivity that has entered its way into our hearts. And we think we don't have it, and we are full of it. We have got to have an attitude of repentance. Not one that says, hey, I get it, but one that says, I want something different. I want to have my life open to people. Other demographics, other geographies, other races, other cultures, other ideas that say, God, I don't just want to shield my life and pass judgment on people that don't look like me and secretly just be glad they're here or wonder why they're here. Behavior, attitude, action. And in the midst of all that, we can never waver from preaching a true gospel. A true gospel. If our goal as a church is to get people to come back, to grow and have a place that you're not going to be embarrassed when you invite your friends, we're failing. We're failing. So we preach a true gospel, right? We don't entertain, and we're not here to seduce, and we're not here to try and capitalize so that you can tweet out these little catch lines that come out. And I'm not judging anybody else. The reality is this is conviction in my own heart about who we are called to be. It's what we see happening in the life of Peter, and it's who we should be as a church. So we should fight for it. We have to. There are no options. You want to be a diverse church? Stop just being excited that someone's here that doesn't look like you. Invite them into your home. Get to know them, hear their story, risk a little bit. Repent. Tell them you're sorry. Tell them you're sorry for the way that you were raised in your own upbringing. Ask God to break down the barriers of your life that are sitting in judgment of people that walk in and look different, act different, have done different things. And then let's engage in a true gospel that says, God, none of this is about us. This is not about my stories. If I've done something great, it's that you have done a work in me that I can't explain. And that true gospel is what we should be centered on constantly, 